Good morning. This is a major weekend for coffee lovers. I'm very much a coffee lover. I have an obsession with coffee. I, I, I do. Uh, in fact, I, in my house, I have six different devices, six different methods for making and enjoying coffee. I really love coffee. And this weekend is kind of a coffee lover's dream. Uh, as it turns out, today, today is National Coffee Day. How about that? Congratulations, uh, we did it. Uh, it seems like I just got last year's decorations put away, and here we are again. Uh, where does the time go? But National Coffee Day, that's today. So have a special cup or something, I guess, I don't know. But the celebration does not have to end today. That's the best part. I don't know who makes these holidays, but uh, today is National Coffee Day, and Tuesday the 1st is International Coffee Day, which is better. You can keep the celebration going, right? And international coffee is a lot better than American coffee, you know, Folgers or whatever. So, uh, so go have, uh, have a cup on Tuesday. In fact, if you play your cards right, if you time it right, you could get a little caffeine buzz going this morning and kind of ride it all the way through to International Coffee Day on Tuesday. That's my plan. I'm going to do that. Because, you know, I mean, no matter how you choose to brew your coffee or whatever, it's really about the caffeine. It's, that's, that's why we drink coffee. At the end of the day, coffee is about caffeination. We want to motivate ourselves. We want to energize ourselves. We want to avoid laziness and feel productive and all those kinds of things. And as it turns out, uh, coffee... <coughs> or caffeination anyway, is a great way to introduce our next uh, warning from the book of Hebrews. Uh, If you've been with us over the past few weeks, you know we've been exploring the book of Hebrews, and specifically we've been exploring uh, these warning passages that are peppered throughout the book. We've talked about the danger of distraction, the danger of drift, the danger of disbelief. And today we're going to look at what might seem like a danger that we could avoid if we just over-caffeinate ourselves, if we just energize ourselves and keep powering through. But in fact, it goes a lot deeper than that. So let's take a look at the next warning passage from the book of Hebrews. This morning, we're going to be in Hebrews, starting in chapter 5, and we're going to explore the danger of dullness. Hebrews 5, this comes from uh, verse 11. It says this, We have much to say about this, But it's hard to explain because you're slow to learn. That last phrase, slow to learn, that's the heart of the warning. And and different Bible translations, they come at this idea a bit differently. We just read the rather polite, slow to learn. That's a nice way to say it. Another version says, you've picked up the bad habit of not listening. I think my kids have also picked up that bad habit. That's another nice way to say it. Kind of breaking the news to a person gently, right? A gentle warning. Another Bible translation says something similar. It says, you don't seem to listen. Okay, starting to get a little more blunt, a little more straightforward. Another common translation says, you're no longer trying to understand. All these translations, they're kind of beating around the bush a little bit. They're trying to be nice, trying to give you the truth a little gently. It's kind of as if, uh, it's, it's if your mom, your dear, sweet mom, is trying to tell you something gently. She's lovingly telling you the truth. And then there's the translation we've been using throughout this series, the CSB, and it reads a little more bluntly. It's as if your mom is trying to let you down easy, and then your dad walks into the room and just shoots you straight. It says, you're too lazy. That's it. Boom. Get a job, kid, you know? So that translation, it says this. It says, we have a great deal to say about this, and it's difficult to explain since you've become too lazy to understand. 
Well, that cuts right to the point, doesn't it? This word lazy is also translated dull. That's why we call it the danger of dullness. Plus lazy doesn't start with a D, so there you go. So this idea, this, this key idea is dullness, meaning slow to learn. But it's not just slow to learn like, like stupid or something like that. It's not incapable of learning. It's really more the idea of an unwillingness to learn. That's where laziness comes into play. It's a, it's a lack of desire to grow. This is the next warning for us and for the original church that the author of Hebrews is writing to. And remember, the author is giving them a series of warnings. He sees the the danger, the risk they've exposed themselves to, and he wants to do something about it. And here we see some of his frustration. He knows they're better than this. They're better than the way that they're acting. They're capable of more. His frustration comes out in his verse where he tells them they can't handle all the truth that they really need to hear. He goes on to tell them this. Uh, Look at verse 12 with me, the very next verse. It says, although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. You need milk, not solid food. Now, everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he's an infant. But solid food is for the mature for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. See, he wants to give them solid food. He wants to give them the truth they need, but he feels like they're not mature enough to handle it. They're just like infants who can't handle solid food. They can only handle milk. And yet for them, it's their inability or their unwillingness to learn spiritual truth that's made them unable to digest more solid truth. So unlike an infant that will grow into solid food over time, they're choosing to remain spiritual infants. They should be old enough to handle solid food, but they're choosing to stick with milk. So he's frustrated. He wants to give them solid food, but they don't seem ready. Yet at the same time, he realizes more milk is not going to help. So he decides to to risk it. He decides to launch in with the solid food. The very next verse, the beginning of chapter 6, he says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary teaching about Christ and go on to maturity. He's, he's going in with a solid food. In fact, he launches into one of the most uh, complicated passages in the entire New Testament. I, I met with a person in my office a while back, uh, a person, she was uh, raised in a different denomination, had been taught some different things, and she wanted to, to discuss some stuff, just clarify what our church understood about certain issues. And so I was happy to meet with her. I thought, oh, this would be nice, talking about Bible and doctrine, and I'm happy to do those things, you know. And then she says, so in Hebrews 6, it says, and she launched into this, this is super complicated passage. And I thought, oh, she brought a bazooka to a knife fight. You know, I don't know what to do with this thing. It's a tough, tough passage. And spoiler alert, it's still going to be a tough passage by the time we're done this morning. I'm not going to unpack it all for us. But one thing that helps us understand the danger of dullness is to remember the context. Again, the author of Hebrews, he's, he's writing to a church, to a group that's tired. They're facing some real challenges, some, some persecution. Some of them have been imprisoned just because of their faith in Jesus. So this is a group of people that, that they're on the brink. They're ready to drift, ready to give up, ready to just throw in the towel. And it's important to remember they're not casually drifting. It's not like some of the conversations we sometimes have around the church office, like, hey, I haven't seen so-and-so in a while. I hope they're okay. It's not like that. These folks in the book of Hebrews, they're not casually drifting, and in a few weeks they might come back. They're running away, or they're fading away, just trying to blend in with the rest of the culture, and they're doing it vocally. They're, they're taking other people with them. 
It reminds me of the scene in the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. I'm sure you've seen that movie every Christmas where uh, George Bailey wants to go and adventure and uh, go around the world, but he has to settle the affairs of the, the savings and loan after his father passes away. And he's got some things settled, and he's just headed out of town on his honeymoon, ready to, to finally start his new life. And he notices there's a big crowd forming outside the bank building. It's chaos. And his friend says, well, I've never seen a run on the bank, but I bet it looks a lot like that. Well, that's that's the situation the people in the book of Hebrews are in. They're they're panicking, and you can't really blame them on some level. They're facing some tough stuff. But the real challenge for them, the reason the author is so frustrated with them, is because they're not growing. And more to the point, they're not doing anything to help themselves grow. That's why he tells them they should be eating solid food, but they're not. They won't grow. They face the danger of dullness, the lack of desire to grow. And maybe that's a danger you face. Maybe if you're honest with yourself, you have a lack of desire to grow spiritually. Maybe you've taken your spiritual growth for granted. Maybe you're stuck drinking milk when you really should be eating solid food. Well, part of the problem is it's sometimes hard to know how much growth we should see in our lives. I mean, there's no magic formula for spiritual growth. There's no benchmarks like when your, your child goes to the pediatrician and they say, oh, by this age they should be doing this, and by this age they should be doing that. In our spiritual lives, we don't really have all those kinds of benchmarks. So it's hard to know how we're growing. I mean, we can look back over time and see it often, but it, it's hard to measure our spiritual growth. But the author of Hebrews gives us some benchmarks, some ways that we can measure ourselves. In this passage, there's a couple of different marks of maturity. Let's read the passage one more time, verse 12. Although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. You need milk, not solid food. Now, everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he's an infant. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. So notice he tells them they ought to be teachers. That's the first sign, the first mark of maturity. That doesn't mean that everybody who's mature has the spiritual gift of teaching, but it means that a mature person ought to be able to pass on things that they have learned. They ought to be able to instruct other people in matters of faith. They ought to have grown enough to be able to articulate some basic truths and to pass those things on to others. Even if all you ever do is instruct your own children, you ought to be able to do that. That ought to be part of what mature believers do. And this word that's translated ought, it implies an obligation, not just a a desired characteristic. Each of us is obligated to pass on what we've been given. We each have an obligation to develop other people, the next generations of the church. So that's one mark of maturity, that we're capable of teaching other people. The second mark of maturity is in verse 13. It it talks about being experienced with the message about righteousness. That's kind of an odd phrase, but it gets the idea of having this kind of teaching show up in our lives. So we're not just reading the message of righteousness, but we're experiencing it. As our, our lives are aligned with the message of righteousness. The book of Hebrews tells us God's word is living. It's effective. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God, that the message of righteousness, has power. 
And one mark of maturity is letting it have power in our lives. So it's not simply a matter of reading the word, but having it show up in your life. That's maturity. That our lives are changed by our exposure to God's message. Our lives are marked by more and more righteousness. That should be something that happens in our life. Our, our moral choices, our, our day-to-day lives, they don't look like everybody else's. They're different because we're changed by our encounters with God's word. So taking the message of righteousness, really applying it to our lives, that's a mark of maturity. There's a third mark of maturity here, a third way that we can know we've moved from milk to solid food. First, we're capable of teaching others, of passing on the spiritual growth we received. Then we're seeing that righteousness show up in our lives. We, we read the message, the word of God, it changes us. And third, verse 14 tells us we should be able to distinguish good from evil. And we think, well, even a child can do that. I mean, even a two-year-old can tell the difference between good and evil. We know that because they'll choose evil every single time, right? Two-year-olds. But, uh, but they can tell. So how is this a mark of spiritual maturity? Well, it gets to the idea of discernment, of being able to to look at the world, complex situations, look at your life, and understand what's good and what's not. It goes beyond simple intellectual understanding. What it means is you really have internalized things such that you can discern what's good. Uh, Think about it this way. Imagine you have to have surgery, heart surgery, okay? And the cardiologist, so smart. Their office is lined with books about surgery and hearts and all those things. But imagine that halfway through your surgery, the doctor has to stop and consult one of his books. Right? He has to look things up every time he cuts somebody open. Well, that's not the heart surgeon that you want. right? You want the person who's taken the, the effort to not only learn, but to really internalize, to retain that knowledge. The person who can see a complex situation and make wise decisions because they put the time and the dedication in to learn and to grow. So when it comes to discerning good and evil, a mature person has dedicated themselves to God enough that they can understand the heart of God in tricky situations. I mean, in our culture, uh, we're constantly bombarded with opportunities to discern good from evil. Every time you watch TV or the movie, even just engaging the news, There's dozens of issues you have to decide. Is this something that honors God? Or is this something that's in line with what God wants me to think and act on a certain issue? I mean, in the old days, you could have polite conversation with people without getting into these kinds of issues. But those days are gone. You can't even talk sports without getting into moral dilemmas these days, right? But a mature person has discernment. One of the marks of maturity is that we've invested in our relationship with God enough that we're able to discern new issues that come up. It doesn't mean that we get so mature that we stop going back to God's word and learning, but it means that when we open up God's word, we we find ourselves in familiar territory. We're able to build on things that we've learned in the past. So these are some marks of spiritual maturity, good ways that we can measure our lives and discern where we need to grow. And the list is a little bit surprising, really, but it highlights for me something that I think we very often get wrong. Let me explain what I mean. I I hear a lot of people say they want to grow, they want to be mature, and that's great. I know, uh, we we know that part of what that means is that we've got to surround ourselves with good inputs, good teaching, things like that, good Bible studies, things that are going to help us grow in spiritual maturity. But there's a common misconception I hear a lot, even, uh, and I've even thought this way myself. It has to do with teaching. We think that a certain type of teaching, a certain type of, of knowledge is really what it means to be mature. 
I mean, I've heard people over the years express it a little bit differently, but it always kind of has the same basic thinking behind it. We want to leave fluff teaching, and we want to get to some meat. You know, sometimes people even reference this passage, talk about a certain type of preaching or teaching as a solid food. And it's good to be on the lookout for good teaching. It's good to practice that kind of discernment, but a lot of times we're misguided in this because almost every time it comes up, almost every time I hear people talking about solid food, They're really saying the same thing. They won't say it quite this way, but what they mean is, I want somebody who will fill my head with knowledge. They want to know, you know, fine points of theology or or Greek grammar, or they want to dig into the cultural background of the Bible cultures. And and don't hear me wrong, those things have value. They can be very helpful, necessary, even in some cases. My own uh, knowledge of those things has greatly enhanced my understanding of the Bible. So those things are great tools. But I think the problem is, We want to just collect these tools, this head knowledge, and we don't want to let it actually change us. Like we all know that person who has a garage full of tools and they're all in pristine condition because the person doesn't ever use them, right? You know, they got every tool you can imagine, but they never put them to work. Well, we face the same kind of temptation in our spiritual lives. But for the author of Hebrews, solid food means not that you know the Greek or Hebrew word for righteousness, but it means that righteousness shows up in your life. It means that your life is spent investing in others, teaching them. It means the same thing that Jesus tells us. He says the Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and therefore prove to be my disciples. So solid food doesn't consist of filling our heads with knowledge, It doesn't mean that we know so many things that we ought to be teachers, but instead it means we've produced fruit in our lives. We ought to be teachers because we have so much experience in righteous living that we can pass those lessons on to other people. Part of the frustration that the author of Hebrews has with this church is that it's full of people with knowledge. I mean, all through this book, he references the Old Testament uh, stories and characters, even really obscure stuff. And it's clear that this church knows all that he's talking about. They knew all about their Bibles. But they were still spiritual infants because they didn't have the fruit in their lives. That's what's missing. That's why he tells them they're lazy. Because they were just storing up knowledge, but they're not passing it on. They're not producing fruit. The Apostle Paul tells us knowledge puffs up, but love is what builds up, builds other people up. That love in action, is that's the key to real maturity. And he drives that point home with another analogy. If you skip over all the really hard parts of Hebrews 6, and you look down to verse 7, it says this. For the ground that drinks the rain that often falls on it and that produces vegetation useful to those for whom it's cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it's worthless and about to be cursed and at the end will be burned. So he's telling them that that God has given them rain. He's given them blessings. He's given them what they need to produce fruit or in this case, vegetation, nutritious, useful, helpful crops. Just the kind of thing that Jesus says will prove that we're his disciples. But they've fallen into the danger of dullness so that all they've produced is thorns, thorns that are worthless, dangerous even, that are, that are drawing people away from Jesus. Well, just like the church in the book of Hebrews, we need to have the right idea about our own spiritual growth, our own maturity. We need spiritual maturity that's focused on fruit, focused on putting God's love into action, focused on seeing our lives change in a way that positions us to help others have their lives changed by God. 
And this morning, we have an opportunity to do that, actually, to bear some fruit. Just a simple opportunity. But out in the foyer, we got a table set up for our ministry to Blue Ridge Elementary. You can stop by that table and sign up to support the staff of Blue Ridge as they go into their uh, parent-teacher conferences. So even today, you can take a simple step that can start to bear some fruit. Uh, It might surprise you to learn, but I'm actually the pastor of adult discipleship. I have a whole role, a whole set of responsibilities apart from my side gig of preaching. And uh, I'm actually very passionate about helping people grow spiritually. I'm passionate about creating an environment where people can respond to what God is doing. And we've worked hard here at Trinity to create just such an environment. And just like the author of Hebrews uses a, a plant analogy, vegetation versus thorns, here at Trinity we have our own plant metaphor, if you will, to help us understand what, what healthy spiritual growth looks like. For us, it's a tree. Our model of spiritual growth is uh, uh, of how a person is shaped to be more and more like Jesus. Our model is a tree. And just like a real tree takes good things, nutrients from the soil, so do we as believers take good things that God puts in our lives and turn them into spiritual fruit. That's the big idea of what happens here at Trinity. We try to create environments that position each of us to be able to produce fruit in our lives. And just like any plant, you need roots in order to get the good stuff from the soil up into the branches where the fruit can grow. And here at Trinity, our roots are what we call the three investments Three things that we think every single one of us should be invested in in order to see this kind of spiritual fruit in our lives. The first root, the first investment is just investing our Sunday morning. So that means a couple of things. It means making church participation a priority, for one. We'll talk more about that later on in this series, but that's important. If you're not engaged here regularly, that makes spiritual growth that much harder for you. We all need the gifts that you have, and you need the benefit of the gifts that we all have. So that's part of what it means to invest our Sunday morning. Another thing it means is to take advantage of our adult classes on Sundays. We've got a a variety of classes, some biblical teaching, uh, some topical classes. Uh, You can find a catalog out in the guest services center, but all of them are practical ways to help you grow, to help you produce fruit. Another way you can invest your Sunday morning is by serving on Sundays, teaching or helping with our kids' ministry. That's a valuable way for you to grow. A lot of our youth have invested their Sunday mornings uh, helping out with kids' ministry in that way. That's, That's investing your Sunday morning. That's one way you get the good things that God has to offer into your life. Well, there's other roots there. You can see one of the other roots is serving in a ministry. Serving is a great way to see growth in your life. You've heard us talk about our impact team when we uh, talk about making an impact or serving. We don't bring those things up just because we need your help. We talk about that because we know that serving is one of the things God uses to help you grow. It gets us out of our comfort zone. Whether you serve on a Sunday morning or serve during the week in one way or another, you, you making the sacrifice of time and energy is something that God can use in your life to help you grow. Your serving should show up not just as a blessing to other people, but it should show up as a blessing to you as well in your own life. The third route you see there is our growth groups. Joining a growth group is a fantastic way to grow. We've been talking about our growth groups a lot over the past few weeks, and growth groups, they're just small groups of people, about 8 to 12 adults. They meet in homes throughout the week. They pray together. They study together. They just do life together. You have a great opportunity to join a growth group coming up soon. We call it Group Link. 
If you come to Group Link, you'll meet some group leaders, you'll meet some other folks who are looking for a group, and you'll leave connected to a group. It's just that easy. All you have to do is just mark your connection card so we know to expect you for Group Link. So those three roots, those three investments, they're all things that we have put in place to help you bear fruit, spiritual fruit in your life. Whether it's serving, attending an adult class, joining a growth group, all those things help you grow spiritually. But what does the spiritual growth look like? How does it show up in our lives? You can see the top of that tree has branches, and they're they're labeled with what we call the four lifelong practices. And the four lifelong practices, they were developed here at Trinity many years ago, and they're basically a summary of what it means to be a disciple, to be a follower of Jesus who bears fruit. If you look throughout the Bible, you'll find dozens and dozens of different commands or descriptions of what it means to be like Christ. Well, that's pretty overwhelming. Rather than try to weigh ourselves down with all those commands, trying to keep all that stuff straight in our minds, we've lumped each one of those into these four categories. So these four practices, they basically summarize all that it means to be a Jesus follower. And we call them lifelong practices because you grow in them over the course of your lifetime, hopefully. So the four lifelong practices, they're actually really easy to remember, a lot easier than remembering every command and description in the Bible. The four lifelong practices are pursuing, renewing, living, and giving. Pursuing, renewing, living, and giving. Let me unpack each of those briefly. The first one, pursuing, what we mean by that is pursuing God through holy habits. What does that mean? Holy habits are things like prayer, reading the Bible, the other spiritual disciplines that that benefit us, that grow us, things like fasting, solitude, all those kinds of things. There are habitual practices in our lives that make us more like Jesus. Jesus certainly modeled these things in his life, doing all those things at, at different times, and there's a great value in us doing those things. And not just occasionally, but but there's value in us doing those things on a regular basis, making a habit of these things. So we don't just pray sometimes when we really need something or want something, but we pray habitually as a way to communicate with God, as a way to develop our relationship with him. I mean, just like with a spouse, if you only talk to your spouse when you need something, you're not going to be married very long, right? Prayer is meant to be habitual. We pray as a way to build our relationship with God, us talking to him and really him talking to us. Another holy habit, engaging your Bible, reading the Bible, there's a lot of different ways you can do that. Frankly, you can't go wrong as long as you do it uh, uh, on a consistent basis, making a habit of it. There's all kinds of plans you can find online or in a study Bible, if you have a study Bible, plans that are going to be easy for you to engage, some that are going to be extensive. I've uh, done the reading through a Bible in a year several times. That's always fruitful, sometimes just a chapter a day, sometimes more. You really can't go wrong however you choose to do it as long as you're doing it consistently. And we read the Bible as a habit, not because it's an obligation. It's not. We, we make a habit of engaging the Bible because it's the primary way that God speaks to us. God communicates to us through prayer and through his word. So if we want to grow, a big part of how we want to do that is habitually engaging our relationship with God through these practices, prayer, Bible reading, other spiritual disciplines. So pursuing God through holy habits, that's one of the four lifelong practices. And the second is renewing Renewing your mind. Renewing your mind. This gets to ideas such as uh, just aligning your thinking and your priorities around the things that are priorities to God. 
as you're reading the Bible, as you're engaging God through prayer, your thoughts are being changed to be more in line with his. Your habits start to really sink into your mind. And this practice just gets also to the idea of having right thinking, right doctrine about God and about yourself. At the beginning, that might look like something really simple. It's just, just coming to understand and embrace the gospel really getting what Jesus has done for you, how his death pays the penalty for your sins, understanding that you can surrender yourself to Jesus with joy. Since it's a lifelong practice, eventually you'll understand things enough to begin passing them on, like we talked about. It's a mark of maturity. As you grow in this area, you're going to be equipped to lead other people. You're going to develop an eternal perspective. So the way you understand events in your life is going to be more in line with God's perspective, that discernment we talked about. And these things don't happen overnight. That's why it's a lifelong practice, but they happen as you continue to grow throughout your lifetime. These are goals to shoot for, to work towards, practices to develop over the course of your life. The third lifelong practice is living, living a transformed life. This is where all the things in your mind, all the habits you're developing, they actually show up in your life, the kind of fruit we've been talking about. Your life changes because of what God is teaching you and what God is doing on the inside of you. It starts to show up on the outside. You recognize the gap between what your life looks like and what the life of Christ looks like, and you start to make changes, tangible changes, that will shrink that gap. It starts with simply accepting the gospel, accepting by faith what Jesus has done and applying that to your life. Another early step is baptism, a step of obedience that helps you identify yourself as a follower of Jesus. Later on, as you grow and develop, there's other steps to living a transformed life. You start to shape your your marriage and your family around obedience to God. You trust God even in hard times. Your faith becomes stronger and stronger. You demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit, things like love, joy, peace, patience, those things. Your life is transformed because you're surrendering your life to Jesus. The fourth lifelong practice is giving, giving away your time and your faith and your money. It's just another way we bear fruit in our lives. We make our lives look like Christ's. He's the standard of our giving, and he gave everything. So looking to him, we begin to model our lives on his, becoming Christ-like in the way that we deal with our resources, our money, our time, our faith. We learn to share, we learn to give freely, trusting that God's going to provide everything that we need. So these four lifelong practices, they're simply our way at Trinity to mark how we're doing at being disciples, at being more and more like Jesus. Just like this passage, we want to be feeding on solid food, which means we're producing fruit. That's ultimately what it means to be a Jesus follower. Now we've mentioned a lot of things we can do to help us grow, to help us mature. A lot of things we can do to help us overcome the danger of dullness. But I want to leave us with one very important reminder about our spiritual growth. It could be very, very easy to boil discipleship, to boil following Jesus down to uh, a series of practices, a checklist of to-dos. But it's very important to remember that these practices, these lifelong practices, they're not to-dos. They're not a list of, of things to check off. These three investments, they're, they're not ways that you grow. They're simply tools that God uses in your life to grow you to be more and more like Jesus. You're investing in your own spiritual growth, but God brings the growth. These are just tools. In fact, at the very end of the book of Hebrews, the author is praying for the church And he says this, he says, May God equip you with everything good to do his will, 
working in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. What he's saying is it's, it's, it's God's will that we would do things that please him. And yet it's also God who equips us to be able to do his will. So in other words, accomplishing God's will, spiritual growth, happens when God equips us with the ability to do that. We grow when God gives us the ability to grow. So we don't grow when we just check off a bunch of boxes on a list. Oh, I joined a growth group, I read my Bible, I gave my tithe. No. God has given us the tools, and he's going to put them to work in our lives. So the way to overcome the danger of dullness, the temptation to be lazy, to take our spiritual growth for granted, the way we overcome that is not by doing a bunch of stuff. But the way to overcome the danger of dullness is to keep our focus on Christ. Keep looking to him, keep being anchored to him. Of course, we've called this series Anchored, and the reason for that is this verse that comes right here in chapter 6. The author of Hebrews tells us our hope in Jesus is an anchor for our soul, firm and secure. As we remain anchored to Jesus, God gives us what we need to grow to bear fruit for him. So let's continue on with faith and perseverance, resisting the temptation towards laziness. Let's pray. God, we desire growth. Uh, We desire to be more and more like you and your son, Jesus. And we know that that is something that comes from you, that you equip us with the ability to do that. And we don't want to be people who are marked by laziness, by dullness. We want to be people who are marked by spiritual fruit. And I pray that as each of us as individuals continues to grow, continues to lean into these lifelong practices, that you would grow us not only as individuals, but grow our church into a church that bears much spiritual fruit for the sake of this valley. We want to see our whole valley filled with the knowledge of your glory, the way that the waters cover the sea. And we know that that happens as we lean into our own individual growth, trusting that you've equipped us and that you will see your will done in our lives. Help us to be surrendered to you, anchored to you. And we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.